Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Sure, we've all had fun messing around with AI image generators and conversation bots, but AI is more than a novelty. Businesses around the world have found ways to harness its potential, like spotting inventory shortages before they happen or supporting supply chain management. And it's very possible that your business could benefit from AI integration too. Unlock the potential of AI and discover even more possibilities with SAP Business AI. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking to Matt Mullenweg, the CEO of Automatic, the company that owns WordPress.com and Tumblr, the irrepressible social network it acquired from the wreckage of AOL, Yahoo, and Verizon. Yes, Verizon owned Tumblr for a minute, but it doesn't anymore. Automatic does. And Matt runs it all. His point of view is the world is better off when the web is open and fun, and Automatic builds and acquires products that help that goal along. It owns SimpleNote, the popular note-taking application. It owns the podcast player PocketCast, which some of you might be listening to this on. The bet is that you need an open alternative to Apple and Spotify. That bet is perhaps most pronounced with WordPress itself, which Matt co-founded. If you don't know, WordPress is one of the most popular web publishing platforms in the world. Something like 43% of all the websites on the internet run on WordPress, which is a piece of open source software that anyone can download and use for free. It is officially administered by the WordPress Foundation, a charitable organization that Matt founded. But if you don't want all that hassle, you can just go to wordpress.com and pay automatic to do all the work for you. It is an absolutely fascinating business model that has clearly worked very well. And I wanted to know more about why Matt set it up that way and what the challenges of that structure are. Automatic also runs WooCommerce, which is an open source competitor to Shopify. They're both platforms that enable people to sell things online. If you've been listening to Decoder, you know that we had Shopify's Harley Finkelstein on the show a few months ago. If you have a website, the next thing you might want to do is sell things on it. And the dynamics of the competition for commerce services are all over the place after Apple basically reset the online ad market when it enabled something called app tracking transparency on the iPhone. It was great for privacy, but it made it harder to sell things online because it's now harder to target customers with ads. You can debate the trade-off between the two things endlessly, but I was curious how Matt saw things playing out. And of course, I wanted to talk about Tumblr, which... I mean, it's Taylor Swift's favorite social platform. It's one of those things that users have kept alive no matter how many corporate owners have tried to kill it. Under Automatic, it's thriving once again, but like every social platform, it has meaningful moderation challenges. Famously, to even get an app on Apple's App Store, it had to ban porn, which users are still upset about. Matt and I talked about these challenges, how Tumblr is currently moderated, and his ideas for the future of moderation, which he thinks they can do much better while still keeping Tumblr one of the more permissive social platforms for artists on the web. One note, Matt mentioned something called Gutenberg a few times. 
That's the new creation experience in WordPress, the part of the site where people actually make things. He is very proud of it. Okay, this one's long, but it's deep. I think you're going to like it. Matt Mullenweg, CEO of Automatic. Here we go. Matt Mullenweg, you are the CEO of Automatic. You're the co-founder of WordPress. Right now, you just told me you are also technically the CEO of Tumblr. Welcome to Decoder. Very happy to be here. Yeah, it's been a couple of years since we talked. The last time you and I chatted was right after the Tumblr acquisition. Uh, that was a fascinating conversation, but it was years ago. So there's lots to follow up on. Automatic has bought a lot of companies. You re released a lot of products that started with WordPress, which you obviously founded. You acquired Tumblr. You bought Pocket Cast. You have WooCommerce. Start at the start. What is Automatic? How do you think about it? And what are all of your companies? <laughs> sure. So Automatic is a fully distributed company since 2005, so 17 years now, that's trying to make the web a better place. We want to democratize publishing and commerce, which we've been saying for a long time before democratizing <laughs> was cool. To do that, we both build or partner or buy with things that make the web more open and fun. You know, we're, we're on a podcast now. Podcast, I believe, is one of the very best uh, podcasting apps. It's very user-centric. It's an independent alternative to the Spotify's and Apple's of the world. And uh, we're just relentlessly iterating on it to try to respond to user requests and make it better. Most of our business models are through people uh, paying us so versus advertising or other models. We provide upgrades and uh, those recurring revenue is what allow us to come to work the next day. We're about to come up on 2,000 people uh, working wow. full-time with Automatic. So it's really grown a lot even since last time we talked. I think we hired over 700 last year. 700 people. Where did you hire them all? All over the world. We have folks in 93 countries now from the very beginning, but still, especially last year, a big advantage is that we're not really geographically restricted in uh, where we hire people. And of course, you know, strong believers that talent is evenly distributed in the world. Opportunity is not. So when we provide opportunity to places where they don't normally have it, like we find really, really amazing people and they tend to be great colleagues that stay for a really long time. The other unusual thing we do is we pay global pay rates, which also helps for international recruiting. So we pay uh, similar ranges for salaries, regardless of what country you're in. That sounds great. I just want to dive into the practice of it real quick. Mm -hmm. You want to pay someone in your 92nd country and you only have one person there. Your mm -hmm. compliance cost to that's very high, right? You've got to like register with the government and figure out their tax situation. Like, how do you manage all that? Because that seems like, wow, that's a lot of overhead to be that distributed. Yeah, and there are companies as well that can manage this for you. Like mm -hmm. even in the U.S., when we started, like all 50 states have different rules and different counties have different rules and everything. So most people end up working with like a, a payroll provider. Mm -hmm. um, there are some international equivalents. The other answer, just very simply, is that some of these people are uh, technically contractors who bill monthly, a fixed amount every month. So uh, that removes a lot of overhead, especially for places <laughs> where you might just have a single person in the country. It puts a little burden on folks to have to handle their own taxes, and they usually register a corporation that contracts and things like that. But it does simplify things a lot. Yeah, I, I've always loved this model, and it, it seems like for a lot of people who've tried it, you just like run into the rocks of, in practice, there's actually some amount of complexity you have to, to manage through. And then also, I think the other question is, in practice, okay, I want to find the best podcast host in the entire world. 
how right like that's i can't like mm. I, if there's one person who's the best at it for my role in there in luxembourg like how am i going to find that person how do you go find these people you know something i think companies don't do enough is just promote to their user base or promote to their audience you know there's probably three roles that you're really trying to hire for verge right now mm-hmm. like say those <laughs> <laughs> but but <laughs> run an ad for them. You run ads for other yeah. people. Run ads for yourself, you know? Yeah. We try to put Easter eggs all over our products that lead people to our jobs page. We've tried to make all the about pages of our apps a lot better. Like day one, Pocket Cast, Tumblr. So like if people are in there, like point them to your hiring. And your existing audience, I think, is a fantastic way. Especially if you, like us, have an audience of hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. Yeah, you, you started to mention some of the products. Day One, Tumblr, Pocket Cast, mm-hmm. WordPress. What, what's the what's the suite? Can you do them all? Sure. Well, I'll say the big ones. So <laughs> WordPress.com, WooCommerce, um, and our enterprise business, which is called WordPress VIP, are the drivers of Automatic's business. So yeah, and um, WordPress.com. A lot of people think of it as like a simpler place to host WordPress, but they don't know that it actually can run all plugins and themes for WordPress, and it's all auto-updated, all auto-secure. So think of it like a place you can run any WordPress site. It's um, totally bulletproof, highly secure, update, and can get basically as much traffic as you could throw at it. WooCommerce is open-source Shopify. So it's, it's I think, the <laughs> only uh, e-commerce platform growing as fast as Shopify. We did $31 billion of goods sold through WooCommerce last year, which I think was doubling year on year. You can sell pretty much anything online, and it integrates for WordPress. And then Enterprise has been kind of fun. It's basically like large enterprises who want to use WordPress. Hopefully, maybe The Verge someday. (laughs) But some other sites, TechCrunch, one that just switched over is uh, the WhiteHouse.gov, which, of course, is very interesting right now with all all the things happening internationally. So we we can host any size of WordPress that you can imagine and... uh, and also make it very, very secure. Just like basically like the beefed up version of what we do for regular users. So that's what drives the business. So I don't want to yeah. <laughs> distract from that from these other things. <laughs> but um, we also have always had a, a, what we call five for the future. And so this is an idea, one in the WordPress community, that companies put 5% of their resources back into open source. So this basically avoids the tragedy of commons. So 5% of the 2,000 employees work full-time contributing to open source. They're not working on any of our commercial products or anything like that. And I feel like that's honestly the bare minimum <laughs> that, yeah. that as users of WordPress, right, because we don't build at all, that we can contribute back to make the community better. We also do 5% for, like, new stuff, like kind of our version of other bets or experiments or labs. <laughs> or, and uh, that's what some of these other products fall into, like Day One, Pocket Cast, et cetera. These are typically really well-loved products that have a very passionate user base. Simple Note's another one that's really popular. And you've, I've heard, just covered really positively in the past. Um, <laughs> that we want to cross-promote, we want to sort of bring our long-term investment to bear to see what could happen. I think, you know, that's what WooCommerce was seven years ago. It was kind of small, it wasn't making a ton of money. And now it's a powerhouse. It's going to be as big as the rest of the company combined pretty soon. Uh, and I think that some of these other products, including Day One, um, have that potential. Let's start with the, you said the tragedy of the commons. Uh, it's a powerful phrase. What do you mean by it specifically as it relates to open source software? Tragedy of the commons is a, is from economics, actually. And it's mm-hmm. this story that there's like a common field 
that belongs to this town, but it doesn't belong to any one person. And so if all the farmers brought their sheep and cattle to graze in that field, um, but none of them were sort of investing in maintaining it or maybe not having <laughs> their, their particular sheep or cattle lay off it so things can regrow, it'll get overgrazed and die and there's no more grass and everyone loses. So how this happens in open source is that it's very easy for companies to use open source without contributing anything back. But that's kind of one of the features of it. <laughs> so we, we can't <laughs> complain about it, really, because that is what the license says you can and should do. But I think that companies who think more long term say, OK, I'm getting a ton of value for this. I'm not paying a penny. How do I make sure that this is around five or 10 years from now? Now, we've seen examples of libraries that the whole Internet depends on. <laughs> yes, this is where I was headed towards. Yeah. Uh, but we also have examples of you know, open source projects that reach an exit velocity, where they become this positive flywheel, more people using them, which means more people contributing to them. And they become uh, just totally ubiquitous, almost like natural monopolies, but not evil like monopolies, monopolies that belong <laughs> to everyone. So they, yeah. they, they do good. And that could be things like the Chromium browser engine, which is now powering Internet Explorer, Microsoft's product, in addition <laughs> to, to, you know, Brave and Chrome. Uh, WordPress in the CMS space now has 43% of all websites. Um, it's growing faster than all the others combined. So that'll reach probably 80, 85% in the next decade. Um, you get kind of these Wikipedia for, for like online Wait, did knowledge. You just, you just definitely predicted that WordPress, both the open source and I'm assuming WordPress.com, will power 85% of websites in the next decade? I think that's what we could do. If you look at okay. um, like number of handsets powered by Android, it's about 85%. Um, the browser share that I think Chromium as an engine is going to get to, yeah, 85%, 90%. So you, you'll always have like 10 or 15% of other stuff, new stuff, et cetera. But what happens is when you get the opposite of the tra tragedy of the commons, when you get the abundance of the commons, it becomes a super feature. Like I said, this positive flywheel where the more people that use something, the more people contribute, the better it gets. And since it's totally free and belongs to everyone, the more reasons for people to use it. So the software can evolve really rapidly. If you think of um, the rate of evolution, it just outmatches anything, even including proprietary competitors that might have hundreds of millions or billions of dollars behind them. Uh, they just can't match the brilliance of the world working together on a single thing. Uh, you said automatic is what, 2,000 people now, 700 new people in the mm -hmm. last year. How is that structured? Who works where? So we're structured a bit. We, we call ourselves like a, a digital Berkshire Hathaway. So uh, myself as the CEO of the company and some centralized services, including like uh, HR, legal systems, try to essentially like serve these relatively independent teams that have a lot of autonomy for how to organize, run themselves iterate on the product. So this middle part of the company, call it 200 people, is doing everything we can to remove barriers and help the rest of the company go faster. And then the teams, they run like little mini companies. They have their own CEOs. They have executives, CMOs. They're, they're developing their own boards, actually. Mm -hmm. And uh, then part of what you know the centralized part does as well is say, hey, we're doing this same thing in two places. Like we're building a newsletter thing over here for WooCommerce and we're building a newsletter thing for WordPress.com. How do we combine that and make sure that they work with each other and they complement each other? So I think all org structures are a series of trade-offs. So we trade off for speed and autonomy, but then sometimes we have to come back and make sure we're working with ourselves pretty well. 
the secret of decoder is that fundamentally this is a show about org charts. I don't know if anybody warned you. Like, really? Somewhere inside of the show is a is a series of org chart conversations every single time. The reason I ask is <laughs> it, you'd be surprised. I think when you get CEOs, uh, I'll, I'll, here, I'll throw this theory at you. The most important decision a CEO, any CEO is going to make is how is their company structured? So the most revealing, my theory is the most revealing question you can ask CEO is how, how did you structure your company? And it, everyone has to answer that question because they need to know. The, like, if you if you don't know the answer to that question, you've revealed something very important to, about yourself as a CEO. <laughs> um, whereas if I just like came and hammered you, which I will soon, like, why didn't you solve this moderation crisis? The answer might be revealing. It might not be revealing, but it, it's not the central truth of like how you organize company. That's my thesis. I'm curious what you think about that. It reminds me of, I think it's a Picasso quote where it says like when, when art critics get together, they talk about like the philosophy of art and what this <laughs> movement means for this movement. But when artists get together, they talk about where to buy cheap turpentine <laughs> and what brushes they're using. It becomes right. a lot more tactical, but that's actually yeah. where a lot of the, the artistry comes from. It is true that when I get together with other executives, we often obsess about um, organizational design. But I think what I've learned there is it's not that one design is better than another, it's that you're choosing a series of trade-offs and you need to be deliberate about what trade-offs you're doing. One example of a trade-off we've switched on over the years is um, for a while, our design was totally distributed across all the teams because right? we want these teams to be cross-functional. Des- uh, product design. Product design, yeah. And so for a few years, we actually centralized design. We brought all the designers into like a central team reporting structure, had a really awesome, strong lead there. And that was part of like improving the quality of what we're doing. But once we accomplished that, we put the designers back out into all the teams and divisions. Um, The other fun thing I like to say about Automatic is that it's fractal, meaning that when you zoom in or out, it's self-similar. So when the entire company was 20 people, it looks a lot like what a, a team of 20 people looks like now. So we try to make it so there's a there's sort of a natural growth and division of, um, of teams. That's fascinating. I think the big question for me is you described three things as all the business and a bunch of other things as other bets. When I look mm-hmm. at other companies that are organized like that, there's a natural tension, right? Like one of the other bets going to become bets. How are you thinking about that? Why are you thinking about, okay, I'll know Pocket Cast has graduated out of other bets and become a real business when X. An easy threshold would be 10% of revenue for the company. So if it's under that, it probably is going to be part of the other bet structure and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe report up to a common executive or be abstracted a little bit. And if it's above that, you know, it's a serious business for us. And it's going to have its own representation that, like, we're going to talk about it to the board every every quarter and things. I'll talk about it with you. Yeah, it's. Uh, but the you know the tricky part is actually that we have, and particularly the press has like an addiction to novelty, and so the new thing draws a lot of the attention. But you have to balance that with like we've launched like thirty new things on WordPress.com this year alone that like drastically changed the user experience. Gutenberg is like redefining not just WordPress, but CMSs in general, being used by other CMSs. We're about to put it on Tumblr as well. So there's, there's some really exciting stuff happening, but it doesn't always necessarily fit easily yeah. into the narrative. Well, don't worry. On this show, I'm, um, it's like org charts and decision-making, and uh, then we'll get into WordPress. Um, actually, that's my next This is the decoder question. How <laughs> do you make decisions? When, when you're deciding to 
centralized and then decentralized design. How do you come about that decision? Hmm. Me personally or the organization? Both. And how are they different? Yeah. We, attention that we have is there's definitely folks in automatic who want me, Matt, to have like answers. And they'll ask me a question and be like, what is the vision for XYZ or something like that? But almost everything we've done in designing the company is saying that the answers are at the itch. <laughs> the wisdom is in the people talking to customers, doing the work, writing the code, like designing things, testing, doing user tests. And so we want to make it so the decisions come from the people with the most information. So I try to make as few decisions as possible and really say, how do we push that out to the, the teams, the divisions, you know, the edges of the, the branches of the tree versus the trunk? Um, with the assumption that, you know, none of us are as smart as all of us. And <laughs> now what do we build in there? So what are things I do ask? I ask for transparency so that things are written down, shared, communicated. Um, I love the idea of decision journals. So we use this internal blogging system built on WordPress called P2. I was going to say, it's a movable type. <laughs> um, yeah, it's built on movable type. Yeah. But what's interesting and automatic is this, there's no internal email. Like... I get a handful of emails a year from my colleagues. Everything happens on these internal blogs. And what that means is we have essentially like an organizational blockchain where every single decision going back to like 2007 now is on one of these internal blogs. So you can find how every piece of code works or every business decision or every logo or every, everything is, is in there somewhere. So even if like you and I decided something on a meeting, we need to write it up afterwards so it's on this P2 so people can participate in it asynchronously and future generations or future versions of ourselves who've forgotten why we made a decision can tell why we did that. And then finally, we try to say reversible decisions quickly and irreversible decisions deliberately or slowly. Um, you can kind of put pretty much every decision into two categories. Most, 99% of what you do is very reversible. Some things are really big. Um, who you take funding from, acquisitions, like these things are hard to unwind. So you need to make those decisions very deliberately. What's a decision that comes to you that you have to make regularly? You know, what's funny is, especially across 2,000 people, the things that come to me are the things which no one else has been able to resolve yet, ideally. <laughs> so it's made it through a lot of layers of really smart, talented people trying to resolve it before it got to me. And so that means that my job is never dull. <laughs> and I, I, like, I, I see the edge cases. I see the things which across... 2,000 people in 93 countries are like the stuff you never thought of. And no one's <laughs> thought great. of before or was completely novel. Um, let's talk about WordPress. Uh, it is a giant. It is perhaps an overlooked giant, as you were alluding to earlier. It, you did just roll out this big new upgrade to it called Gutenberg. Uh, how big is WordPress? How many, how many people work on it? At the company, it's uh, probably about 500 people work mm -hmm. on WordPress. But for every WordPress release, like version 5.9 that came out in December, we list all the contributors. And people employed by Automatic are typically 10% or less of the contributors. Wow. So that's one of the cool things about the WordPress community is that even though we've had this for-profit that I started Automatic for uh, 17 years now, the community has grown and, and thrived over that. So there's uh, lots of plugins, you know, tens of thousands of plugins, themes, billions of dollars of business that goes through other companies in the ecosystem. 
And uh, that's something we very deliberately work on. Like throughout, when you study platforms, you know, whether that's Windows, other operating systems, platforms that were real platforms versus platforms that weren't, there's typically a ratio that comes in, which is um, one to 20. So the creator of the platform or the biggest contributor or the commercializer or whatever you want to call it, if they're making more than 5% of the revenue in that ecosystem, they're probably suffocating the ecosystem. So like, um, it's interesting also if you apply this to app stores. Yeah, <laughs> and the 30% now I'm going to get there, don't worry. But, uh, <laughs> but I would also argue that there's a lot of ma- money being made on top of app stores. Like think of every, you know, DoorDash delivery or Uber ride taken. So there's actually, even though the 30% cut seems egregious and probably unsustainable, if you were to look at the total ecosystem of value built on top of Android, iOS, actually, I, I would argue that they've been very successful platforms and Apple's take all their revenue is probably less than 5% of the value they're creating in the world. So uh, that's what we target. It's also what distinguishes the WordPress ecosystem from the proprietary competitors like Shopify or Wix or Squarespace, which typically will make you know 50 to 95% of the revenue in their ecosystem go, goes to those companies. I think you might be our first open source CEO on the show, depending on when this runs. How do you manage that, right? So WordPress is a big open source project. Anybody can go download WordPress, start a site. You got nothing to do with it. No revenue flows to you. Anybody can modify it and do whatever they want with it. Then there's what they contribute back to the main open source code so that you can release new versions. You guys manage that. Then you have a business next to it. How does all of that work? Like, is there one person who's sort of like, I'm in charge of WordPress and is like approving the patches that get submitted? Like, how are you managing that aspect? And how are you deciding, okay, this is the stuff that will make a release? So I was WordPress's lead developer before Automatic started. So a mm-hmm. couple of years. So that's kind of the first hat I wear. And, you know, you dance with the one that brought you. So when I'm thinking long-term, I'm thinking first and foremost, what will be best for the... WordPress community this year, 10 years, 30 years from now? Like what will make us the most sustainable, the most resilient, the most anti-fragile? So I think that first. I've tried to structure the company I also run, Automatic, in a way that its economic self-interest is totally aligned with what I believe to be the best long-term for the broader WordPress community. And so that includes things like the way that we've chosen to monetize. For example, a lot of open source projects, when they monetize, they create kind of a, a extra features version and mm-hmm. the good stuff. And that's usually how they get you to upgrade. Uh, we're very explicitly, like what you can buy from WordPress.com, you could also buy from Bluehost or GoDaddy or WP Engine or something. So the challenge there is that you can actually buy WordPress from anyone. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's literally a commodity in that anyone can sell you something called WordPress. And by the way, we put all the best stuff into that, like Gutenberg, which vastly expands what you can do with WordPress. That's in core. It's free. It's anyone can use it. And in fact, that's part of what's so powerful about it. It becomes a new standard. We don't hold that back, but sometimes we do need to charge for something. So where we draw that line and how we draw that line is very, uh, it's very tricky. So something we sometimes do is I call it the Robin Hood business model. So there's this plugin called Akismet. It keeps spam off your site. It's kind of the best anti-spam, web anti-spam system on the web. A lot of people don't know, but it's actually the first code I wrote after leaving my job. Amazing. It's the first commercial thing we created before WordPress.com was actually Akismet. 
And it works really well. It's free for personal use and then paid for commercial use. And it's kind of on our system. So we don't really police it that much. So it's a Robinhood business model. <laughs> we, we provide this free service that keeps spam off 43% of the web because almost every WordPress site uses it. And a very, very, very small percentage of people pay that. But that small percentage that pay make it sustainable. It makes it that we've now been able to use and develop and, you know, battle the spammers, <laughs> battle the bad guys now for 17 years. When you are thinking about, okay, how is this thing going to make money? We have lots of competitors, things that commodity. What leaps to my mind is, oh, well, you have WooCommerce, which is this open source mm -hmm. payment stack. When I think about what websites are in 2022, they're most, it seems like they're mostly e-commerce sites. Like that's, mm -hmm. that's mostly the web activity. It's like a handful of new sites and e-commerce sites. Like that's the whole web. The Wordle <laughs> is like the most unusual website in the past five years because hmm. it was, it's a web game, right? And like people went nuts. Yeah. Like, this is the old web. Are, are you see something different happening in that split? You know, like it's, it is fashionable to run around saying the web is dead and apps the world. But I'm like, well, the web's pretty healthy for at least two things. Right. And those two things are, are news and shopping. Hmm. That, I think that's your bubble. If, okay. I, if I'm totally honest, it's, it's, but that's, what's cool about the web is that we can live yeah. in a bubble and that can seem like the whole thing. One thing I'm explicitly trying to do in 2022 is make the web weirder. <laughs> that's great. I, I fully support that project. Yeah. Because one of the fun things about working on both WordPress and Tumblr now, they both provide a lot of freedom and Tumblr, you know, order of magnitude more freedom than you get on other social networks that really try to make your site and your profile look like everything else so they can sell ads more easily, et cetera. You can do some weird stuff on Tumblr, <laughs> including like still allows JavaScript <laughs> and other things. You could, you could host Wordle on Tumblr if you wanted to. It's kind of wild. And people do some really, really interesting, fascinating stuff there. It's also Gutenberg for WordPress. It's like, we're like, let's just stop writing text in a box. That's boring. How do we give you like full layout controls, full mm -hmm. ability to create like something like, um, was it Snowfall? That, you know, New York yeah. Times story that blew everyone's mind. How do we put that? I want to say the Verge did a Snowfall, Snowfall story before Snowfall. It's just uh, my personal uh, Actually, 100%. <laughs> um, yeah, when y'all launched, you had, and you still do it with your editorial features. It's awesome. Yeah, we actually have a publication called Atavist that publishes only once a month. And it's like every story is like a, a visual journey, like, mm -hmm. like the best magazines, basically. We, we want to make that easy for every single one of your authors to do with a few clicks. And that's part of also what kind of is cool about a system like WordPress is uh, sometimes I describe it as Promethean. Like we take the fire from the gods and bring it to the people. <laughs> um, you know, you created this fire, this cool design layout. You probably have a, a proprietary CMS, but the only people who have access to that is people who work for your company or that might license it out or something like that. So we say, how do we take these cool ideas and bring them to literally the whole world where regardless of you know, in 50 languages, no matter if you have any money or what language you speak or anything, we can give you these cool tools. And it's not just news. So people are doing a ton. There's a ton of personal sites out there, a ton of personal blogging, so much art, so many artists that are sharing. People, you know, who sold the NFT for $69 million has published on Tumblr every single day. That's where he published. That's where he got started. That's where he still posts every single day. Um, I apologize, the name's escaping me, but like the biggest movie star in India is publishing to Tumblr every single day. He's done like 4,000 days in a row. Amazing. Uh, like without fail. It's so 
there's, there's people that are sharing. And I think that's, that's to me really, really exciting um, because it's kind of like the personal web. It's, the, yeah. it's different. It's unique. And, you know, I go to a Medium article or even a Substack article and I read the article and I just remember Medium or Substack. I actually forget the author because the sites all kind of look the same. So like, how do you bring that, not just the editorial voice, but also the visual personalization that you can really have your own home on the web. You don't just look like everything else. I buy all of that. And I guess I, news is like too flat and too narrow of a description. Like it's, there's just not like a lot of the weird web, the web that you would have thought of where I made a little web tool that mashes up a map with a, another map, which is like the, that heart, that early web two spirit seems to have faded away into apps or features mm. or social networks. So I'm just curious, like, where do you see the growth for WordPress? Yep, some weird stuff we hope. Maybe it is a lot of artists that are going to sell their NFTs. But I, I just think about where your money would come from. It seems like e-commerce is actually the, the place that you would be most focused. Yeah, so we're doing a good job at democratizing publishing. Yeah. Like, WordPress is on the right path there. And like I said, I think it'll get to like an 85%. I now feel so strongly about doing the same thing for commerce. Because I think that we need those same freedoms, freedom to publish, freedom to transact, freedom to use any payment system, freedom to for the transaction fees to be just as low as humanly possible versus going up every year or spending every year. Like we need an open source alternatives, not just to Shopify, but also to Amazon and Etsy and everything else. Those are still great services, by the way. <laughs> I'm a, I, I give Amazon a big portion of my paycheck. I love yeah. it. And I think I actually would argue that it's making the world a better place. But we still need an open source alternative to serve as a check and balance in the free market towards these um, successful companies. So what does WooCommerce do for somebody? You, I don't know, you have a snowboard store. That's the famous Shopify origin story. Instead of having to build Shopify, you're like, I'm just going to use WooCommerce. How does that work? So it's a plugin for WordPress. So you could go on your WordPress dashboard, search WooCommerce, one-click install it, and then you'd be taken through a workflow that'll help you set up like a merchant account, set up your first products, connect it to shipping. Now, commerce is so complex. You have yeah. really taxes, shipping, <laughs> inventory management. But because WordPress is open source, there's like a ton of extensions built for it. And you can kind of pick and choose and put things together to like have your own store on the web. And there's even now, like, you can have a point of sale. So if you had a physical store, you could have a WooCommerce little reader, integrates with Stripe, et cetera. People can tap to pay, and that will synchronize with your online store. So you can do some pretty fun stuff. Actually, a store we just launched kind of secretly for Tumblr's 15th anniversary is shop.tumblr.com. We're putting, like, kind of like Virgil Abloh-inspired, like, very limited drops of cool, high-quality stuff. And we were able to launch that on WooCommerce in about two weeks. Uh, which shows like you can really do anything. Now, why would you choose it versus one of these other ones? Shopify is, by the way, awesome product, awesome company. Toby's an inspiring leader. I, I really like them a yeah. lot. We had Harley um, on the show a few months back, and I think I, I ended it by being like, well, I'm going to go work at Shopify. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> you know, they're big personalities. I do also think that you're starting to see at the edges the complaints of their ecosystem and that they're sort of like, having so much of the, the revenue flow through them and their kind of commercial need to grow, the obligated growth obligations that they have or embedded in growth obligations are driving them to conflict with their community more and more. And the community is what really made them, I think. Basically, what we did with WordPress is what we're doing now with e-commerce, which is 
uh, WooCommerce is free. It's open source. And so at the low end, we just ruthlessly commoditize it. You know, the average <laughs> person on Shopify is paying $1,200 per year. That's really expensive. It doesn't need to be that expensive. It can be one-tenth and then someday one one-hundredth of that to do have all that functionality. Um, so WooCommerce is one-tenth that today. And it's going to get cheaper and cheaper every year. Like that's When you say it's open source, can I, can I just take it and use it for free? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but no one does that. Most most people are paying you what is one hundred and twenty dollars. We try to make it easy to pay us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and WooCommerce is also different from WordPress in that WooCommerce is wholly owned and run by Automatic, so it's not primarily you know, uh, a I larger see. community. It's really it does have its own community, but it's it's owned and run by Automatic, owned and operated. The other reason people leave Shopify and go to WooCommerce is at the high end. So uh, we have this barbell approach where we get the kind of ruthlessly commoditized low end. And on the high end, we allow customization. So ultimately, a SaaS product will always, you always hit a ceiling with it or a wall, or you might run into something that is different about your business model versus theirs, uh, the SaaS provider. And open source is true freedom, you know? And especially once your store starts to make $100 million plus per year, even small things that could be a half a percent or percent on every transaction start to really add up and be millions of dollars of value. So that's why very, very high-end stores switch to WooCommerce. I think my thing with WooCommerce is that sounds great. I'm super interested in that kind of competition because I think that is kind of the best kind of competition. You're not head-on you know, Shopify 2. You're like, this is a different model, and you can make a series of business and personal and philosophical choices that lead you to our model versus theirs. Mm-hmm. But then broadly, you have the, some of the same challenges, right? So Apple turns off app tracking transparency. Facebook's ad rates plummet because it's harder to target customers. Uh, I get a lot of ads for spoons lately. I don't know what's going on there. But it's like hard to find <laughs> me, the one person in America who's in the market for spoons. Uh, on Facebook, the little e-commerce store that has the one hot pink spoon I'm looking for doesn't find me as cheaply they fall apart and then at the end of all that shopify stock price has crashed right like the, the you can see that apple turning off ad tracking transparency had this like big ripple through the e-commerce stack did that hit you woocommerce stores who advertise on facebook probably were impacted but one thing that people do when they or why they go to wordpress or woocommerce is to build a direct relationship with their customers and not be entirely dependent or mediated by Google, Facebook, et cetera. So they build mailing lists. They uh, have, you know, WordPress has the best SEO in the world and WooCommerce inherits that. So, you know, these WooCommerce stores are findable or an organic search, not just paid search. And because they integrate so well with WordPress, they develop amazing blogs and people follow these <laughs> blogs, you know. <laughs> so this is the things that I think made WooCommerce uh, stores hopefully more resilient to these types of changes. Over time, like we are also part of being developed primarily in an open source way, is we really err on the side of like radical uh, user privacy, radical ownership of data. Like, so we end up being on the right side of history when regulations or new things come in. Where open source gets in trouble is when the regulations are essentially written by the incumbents. So something like a GDPR, which was written in a way that really benefited Google and Facebook and kind of penalized every every other person in the marketplace. So that's tricky when you have that sort of regulatory capture. But, you know, again, I, I always think about these things long term. That could happen for a few years. 
But if you look out 5, 10, 20 years, um, ultimately, consumers and uh, economics will drive these decisions. We need to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about Tumblr. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. It's all over the internet. AI this, AI that. Your friend is turning his cat into a Monet painting. Your coworker used a chatbot to write a sonnet about pancakes. AI isn't the stuff of science fiction anymore, but it's also more than the gimmicks we see on a day-to-day basis. If you're a business owner, AI can offer real solutions to help you scale and innovate. It might be time to check out SAP Business AI. SAP Business AI can help you automate repetitive tasks, optimize inventory management and supply chain analysis, and identify opportunities for growth in your operations. SAP Business AI can help you with finance, sales, marketing, human resources, procurement, supply chain, and so much more. Like guarding against fraud with AI-assisted anomaly detection, or receive data-driven prescriptive guidance at critical decision points. They even have a generative AI roadmap to help you discover upcoming and cutting-edge innovations for your business. Who knows what innovations are around the corner? Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com AI. Support for Decoder comes from Notion. Winter is beginning to wind down, and spring cleaning is just around the corner. In that spirit, it's time to declutter your digital workspace. For that, you might want to check out Notion. Notion combines your notes, docs, and projects into one space that's simple and beautifully designed. And the fully integrated Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger. Doing tasks that normally take you hours in just seconds. Personally, I use Notion to keep myself organized and to store all the information I need in one place. I've tried a lot of productivity apps over the years, and Notion is sleek, intuitive, and powerful. In particular, Notion has an AI feature called Q&A that allows you to search all of your notes by simply asking for what you're looking for. For me, that means old links to news stories, long-lost notes to myself, and maybe even an old password to an account I might be trying to dig up. Seriously, give it a try. It's as easy as just asking a question. We all want to be sending less emails and tuning into less redundant meetings. And Notion can help you by automating tedious tasks, like managing and summarizing notes. It'll also help you save money on all those tools you won't need anymore with Notion's integration. Over half of Fortune 500 companies rely on Notion to simplify their workflow, and you can join them. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash Neelai. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash Neelai, to try the powerful, easy-to-use Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show, notion.com slash Neelai. We're back. Let's talk about Tumblr real quick. I, I think I have a handle on WordPress, which mm-hmm. kind of is at this point, it's kind of like a B2B product, right? It's some individuals are using it, but the, the thrust of it is lots of businesses are using it. They're paying you. It sounds like whatever amount of money they want to pay you at whatever time. Um, you've got a big commerce stack next to it. That feels pretty enterprisey. I'll tell you a stat most people don't realize yeah. is half of all users that we get signing up for WordPress.com every day are there to blog. That's amazing. They're still doing it. So, and to be honest, like even internally, we kind of assumed everyone was coming to us for CMS features. And we, I think we over-indexed on that more businessy side that you just described. 
Also, that's because we're more, we thought more revenue was coming. But when we sliced the data differently, we actually found that half subscribers, half signups, uh, actually more than half subscribers were, they primarily to blog. So I think it's cool that people are still blogging. Yeah, I do too. Uh, we can end it here. My heart is warmed. I don't know further questions. <laughs> uh, that's great. I'm happy that's still happening. Um, okay, so even if you sort of like enterprise-ish is what I would call. It is more enterprise-y and one caveat I'll say to WooCommerce is it's a developer product right now. It's like a Stripe or, or Twilio. So it's really developer first. Okay. And what, what, right next to that is Tumblr, mm-hmm. which is like the most consumer product that has ever existed, <laughs> right? Tumblr. like It's super consumer. Yeah. It's, I mean, but it's also super consumer in the sense that it's a playground for artists, for musicians. Taylor Swift is mm-hmm. reading Tumblr and that shows up in the lyrics and there's a feedback loop between the lyrics and the Tumblr people. Yeah. I mean, it, it's nuts, <laughs> right? It's, it's incredible. Like, the things that happen on Tumblr are utterly unique to any other social platform. You bought it out of sort of the wreckage of Yahoo. When was this now? 2019. 2019. I, yeah. I asked you, what are you going to do with it? And you're like, we've got some great ideas. But the first thing you had to do was like ban all the porn so you could get the app in the app stores. That happened before we bought it. And that was actually under Verizon. That was under Verizon. But you that was like yeah. a... It was going to happen no matter what. If they hadn't done it, you were going to have to do it. Um, I think Verizon is super conservative. Yeah. So uh, if you look at apps like Twitter and Reddit, they actually do have an astounding amount of adult content. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, But they, they do it in a way that uh, is compatible with Apple's rules. So I think Verizon took an extremely conservative approach to try to get rid of even borderline things, things that I would call art uh, from the app. And uh, they did it in a way which I think uh, penalized a lot of legitimate users. One user that contacted me after the acquisition said, I posted a picture of my manicure, you know, a picture (laughs) of their hands, and some algorithm thought it was too much skin tone, their account got banned. And then because the sport was so backlogged, no one responded to them for months. So like, What's a good way to kill a social network? Ban your most active users and don't reply to them for months. But you know what? People will go someplace else and find someplace else to publish. All right. I'm so just looking. Okay. I, but I'm just looking at our conversation from back then. It, mm-hmm. you're, you're correct. Verizon had done it. But your position back then was Verizon might have been more conservative. But you said to us, if you want big policy changes here, put pressure on the app stores. No one has any leverage. Yes. And so still like, true. that's still true. So this Tumblr big change was in the news in December, we were scrambling right before Christmas because Apple came to us. You probably saw where we had to ban these like random tags. You know, the app store review process can be very inconsistent. And sometimes something you've done for years and years, um, they'll come to you and say, that's not allowed anymore. Or we searched for this, you know, search term. And now your app's banned unless you make these drastic changes very quickly right before Christmas. So <laughs> it's it's very tricky. Is So that hasn't calmed down. That, that was really the heart of my question is that you mm-hmm. bought it in a moment of crazy back and forth with app stores. Tumblr's had a bit of a renaissance, right? In the pandemic, people mm-hmm. are using it again. There's been um, glowing write-ups of it here and there. But it's still like, in this weird spot where it's because it's so consumer, it's so arty, it's so wild, which is this whole brand. It runs into app store moderation policies, maybe more than any other product that I can think of, like that, that is like it. (laughs) 
I think we talk about it more than other products, which is okay. maybe why we get into trouble more. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's retaliatory. Uh, but yeah, I, if you, you know, have drinks with anyone who works on this process at pretty much any large app-based business, including Twitter, et cetera, they'll tell you the same thing. Um, apps can get blocked at just things you never even thought of can be blocked randomly one day and your team's scrambling to, to address it. There's been a lot of noise, right? There's been hearings. There's uh, David Hanemeyer Hansen and ranting and raving <laughs> on our shows. Uh, you know, th- there's been a lot of scrutiny of Apple. There are potentially some bills in Congress now. Uh, have is there posture changed at Apple and Google about this stuff, or is it still the same as it ever was? Hmm. Well, you don't hear about this stuff with Google very much. So I will say that Play Store is a lot more consistent in their application of things. Honestly, Apple has a tough job here. So it's not dissimilar to trying to moderate user-generated content. It's that they're moderating hundreds of thousands of apps. And the team that does that, I have no idea how big it is, but let's call it at least a thousand people would be my guess. Um, I literally have no information. That's just a guess. Yeah, so you're going to get some, you're going to get new people. (laughs) You're going to get mistakes. That's (laughs) just part of it. And I do appreciate that, you know, we've been able to resolve everything so far. So all of our apps are still in the app store. You know, sometimes, you know, we disagree, but we're we're usually able to talk our way into uh, following what we think are the rules and, and seems reasonable. But sometimes it delays features weeks or months, to be honest, which really slows, uh, particularly, it's slowed Tumblr down, particularly uh, the last three or four months. Because we're trying to launch a lot of user features like tipping and uh, Post Plus, which is subscriptions. And you know, we're trying to get some of this stuff in there. And we're, you know, we're, we're trying to follow what we think the rules are. Like if the tips go 100% to the users, it doesn't need to, we don't need to charge uh, App Store fee, right? Uh, which is in many other apps. I actually did not know that, that this is true. So if you don't take a cut, Apple won't take a cut? That's the idea. But yeah, that feature has been stuck a little bit. So we're, we're trying to reconcile uh, the UI for that and how it's presented and everything. So yeah, that's one of the, it's, it's just a reality. You know, you live by the app store, you die by the app store. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, I mean, this is like my other big question, right, is – Uh, Back in that interview from a few years ago, you were like, look, I know people say just make it a web app and screw Apple, but apps are it. And then the first half of this conversation, we're talking about the glory of the open web and making the open (laughs) web weird again and making these open source competitors to these uh, proprietary solution vendors. Do you, I mean, are you of two minds? Do you like walk around your house just like arguing with yourself that you run an app based business at the mercy of Apple and you also run a completely open source publishing business over there? Yeah, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. I'm a pragmatic person. Okay. So um, everything we build is is going towards this future of an open web. But also you have to work with the reality <laughs> of how things are today. <laughs> and guess what? You know, like there's going to be like every human in the world over the next 20 years is going to have something like smartphone. And those smartphones will have something like app stores. And you need to work within that world. I do believe over that time frame we're going to have open alternatives. And we need to figure out how to make security and everything else work while we do that. So we've done it on the web pretty well. Um, I think we can do it for native apps um, because we've done it for native apps pretty well on things like macOS and Windows. So I, I think it's possible. My hope is that the Googles and the Apples of the world 
as like two of the most valuable companies in the world with cash reserves larger than most countries, like we'll stop acting like underdogs and start acting like stewards with responsibility to their communities and humanity that they are and behaving more open. So we'll always push for that. We'll always advocate for that. And um, I'm not personally someone who tries to affect change through legislation or lobbying. I, I prefer to do it in the market. This was going to be my question. We, uh, you're on the air here a week or so after we had the CEO of Sonos. They've obviously gone to Congress. You're not trying to do that stuff. Just not my personal specialty. Uh, <laughs> but you're not going to hire some lobbying firm for the open, open web. I think it would be great if somebody would hire a lobbying firm for the open web. So, you know, just that's so an we, idea. That we do our best to represent these issues for the open web. Okay. So we do try to be present because, you know, WordPress is kind of like the dark matter of the web. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you looked at the top 10 websites in the world, you're not going to see the tens and hundreds of millions of WordPress sites aggregated into one name. So people forget it exists. But if you added all those up, it might be the largest thing out there. Actually, that's why I call it the dark matter of the web. So we do our best to advocate for that. But we're also imperfect in that. Like we we don't automatic and myself do not represent the interest of every single independent website and, and developer <laughs> out there. So I do my best to just, you know, say what would make the things more open and advocate for that. But, you know, I'm not trying to influence competitors or other companies we work with through legislation. That just feels just not our thing. Uh, Let's stay on Tumblr for a minute. Tumblr is a social network. It is obviously very consumer. It is very horny. Let's just be honest about it. Um, (laughs) This might be, again, your your personal lens. (laughs) I don't even use it. I just hear what people tell me, man. Um, (laughs) You have moderators, right? How do you moderate the content on Tumblr? Can I tell you some? Yeah. So one, the name of the person I was trying to think of earlier on Tumblr, mm-hmm. and I apologize because I'm going to mess up saying this name. Maybe you can help me. Amitabh Bachchan? Oh, yeah. Amitabh Bachchan. He's like the most famous guy. He's the Indian actor. He's the, he's right. the angry young man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, now he's a very He posts. So look at this. He just posted today at 11.42 a.m., day 51.30 of his daily updates. It's, uh, it's awesome. He's like a daily active <laughs> user of Tumblr. Um, this is <laughs> going to turn, this is gonna turn my mom into a daily active user of Tumblr. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. One of my best friends, you know, old Malik. He was yeah. like uh, the first user of WordPress, one of my best friends forever. He was like, Matt, this guy is on Tumblr. you got to make a big deal. This is a big deal. <laughs> He's a big deal. He, I was just like, I'm sure half of the listeners here are losing their minds. He's like a huge deal. <laughs> uh, okay, so how do you moderating Amitabh Bachchan? Uh, you don't. <laughs> you just let him ride. <laughs> he okay. moderates you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other thing that astounded me about Tumblr, so one, that it had some users like like this guy who are literally using it every day, like Taylor Swift, that like all the other social networks are managed by a team, but they're actually using this themselves. Okay. Because Tumblr provides something that's different from you're going to get on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Number two, 60% of uh, Tumblr users are uh, Gen Z, they're 13 to 24. I had assumed its user base was, um, you know, kind of people who were nostalgic, who like used it in the early or late 2000s, early 2010s, were still using it. Some of them were being born then. <laughs> and then two, we have users younger than Tumblr, which is that's kind of wild. And then the other thing that blew me away is it's um, 85% of the usage comes uh, through the app and it's still getting tens of thousands of signups every day. Prime, about half uh, Gen Z. So Tumblr is young, it's weird, 
It's primarily used on produced on mobile, um, but we also have this power user kind of segment on on web. So web's still pretty important for us. But so to moderate that, I think moderating large social networks is honestly really hard. So you'll you'll never hear me yeah. um, piling on to Facebook or other people like when they make mistakes moderating because it's just it's hard. You have tens or hundreds of millions of people, in Facebook's case, billions. So everything that happens for humanity happens on your network, and you have to try to make that not go wrong. So one of the teams we've expanded the most since acquiring Tumblr is support and trust and safety. I think when we acquired it, Tumblr had a backlog of 80,000 support tickets. We got that to zero just a few weeks ago. So this is an area that Automatics has a lot of experience with. Our other products are generally well-regarded for their not destroying democracy and being like healthy places on the web. And uh, and honestly, the past two years, we've been doing a lot of catch-up there with Tumblr. And the problem was bigger than I imagined. You know, it used to be every post we did on um, on Tumblr, people would say, oh, you know, well, you've launched this new feature. Why, why haven't you gotten rid of the porn parts of Nazis? And... Um, and so we had to do that. <laughs> there were there were poem brats and bad people publishing on Tumblr, and we've done our best and are still today doing our best to keep it a healthy, positive place on the web. Um, if I have to say what I would love for Tumblr to be is, besides just an alternative, uh, another place you can go that's different from the other social networks, it's a place for art and artists. Yeah. And art is, I think, necessary for society, feeds the soul, it's naturally transgressive. Art pushes boundaries. And so we need to evolve what tum- how Tumblr moderation and everything works to encompass that. <laughs> it needs to be the best place on the web for art and artists and a place where they can have a direct relationship to their audience and people can follow things, not be, you know, have an option from like the algorithm that's trying to enrage you to like see things you want to see and get inspired and produce cool things. Like that's what Tumblr is going to be. It's what it is today for millions of people. And we just need to make it much better for that. So this is kind of me saying that Tumblr's moderation policies are going to evolve in a very significant way that I can't announce entirely yet, but it's going to get a lot Come better. Come on, you were so close. Is it because I called it <laughs> horny? Is that what made you change your mind? Well, at the same time, it can't be a place for porn. That's not okay. what our company can do. It's not what, it doesn't work. You know, if that needs to be, you know, Companies like MindGeek and Pornhub and other things that are specifically set up for that. A mainstream company in 2022 with the uh, rules around payment processing, verifying identities, everything. Like adult content is rightly having a lot of regulation around it. And um, and probably dedicated companies should service that. So yeah. that's not, I can't say we're bringing that back. <laughs> I apologize. I know people want to say that. It's like the only but, question on the list, actually. I've been a long buildup to, are you going to bring the porn back? But art and artists are really, really strong on Tumblr, and I want to make it a really great place for art and artists to thrive and create art and artists. And so I think that looks a bit more open than what Tumblr allows today, but it's not the stuff that you would see on a porn site. So let's get tactical on that for a minute. Are you going to have a definition of – it sounds like you're going to change the content rules for Tumblr. Is that correct? You're just not going to announce what they are? Yeah, so if you look at our other products like WordPress.com, we have uh, policies there that allow a lot more than what's currently allowed on Tumblr. And so that's what we're going to try to normalize because those policies have 
evolved and iterated and worked really well to allow, um, you know, a statue of David <laughs> or the portrait of Venice, you know, right now I could get taken down or, or an old Tumblr could have gotten taken down. That's obviously art. Now, Is that compatible with Apple? Yes, it's 100% compatible with Apple. Okay. And I think we can do this in a way that also puts a lot more control in the hands of the community to self-moderate and self-tag uh, with their publishing in a way that gets the content to people who want to see it, but also protects it from people who shouldn't be seeing it. You know, people who are under 18, you know, things like that. Like, we all agree that the app and services should um, not allow that. But um, how we implement that, I think, can be a lot more community-driven than right now, which is like, again, trying to have algorithms that look at things, which is never going to work. Because honestly, as a, a judge at the Supreme Court famously said, like on the definition of pornography, I know it when I see it. Um, he regretted these that, lines. Are, I just want to point that out. That? That, judge, that judge regretted saying that. And he thought it was oh, a mistake. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a real, a real uh, bugaboo it, it, for me. It is true that writing a strict definition is tricky. I think even like when you talk to Apple moderators, they'll point you to like the Webster's definition of it or something. Yeah, and, and some of it is in the eye of the beholder. So, um, but there are certain objective definitions that you could say on a piece of content that we could allow better tagging of and then, you know, allow filtering of those tags. Yeah. So that just like tactically though, how many moderators do you have working at Tumblr? So there's external moderators as well right now at Tumblr. So the actual number is, I believe, above 400. Okay. And that's the whole site. Now, what's interesting is we actually have a lot less of that on our other services that I think are more effective. So part of what I think is necessary to create a really effective moderation scheme is building really, really good tools for the moderators to moderate lots of content quickly and do so in context. Both of those are really, really important for, I think, accurate, fast moderation. A single person working an eight-hour day could actually get through thousands or tens of thousands of things if they have the right tools. And so I would actually like to decrease our use of external moderation uh, contractors and go really to um, internal teams uh, with really good tools to be leveraged here, yeah. including using things like machine learning and AI, but not using it for decisions using it to augment the humans. Uh, so you know, the central approach that you probably heard of, like uh, AI on its own can be bad, humans on its own isn't as good at AI as something, but when you combine them, you can actually get like super human results and better than either on their own. One thing we've heard about a lot is, okay, the people who work in these moderation facilities, they basically have bad jobs, they leave with PTSD, with other problems. Are you thinking about that? Is that something that's on your mind that you have to solve? Would these tools potentially solve it? I, I honestly think about that all the time. And in fact, one of the first things I, I did when coming in to tell their team was do support and do trust and safety and, you know, right along with folks dealing with that content. I think folks working on this are the unsung heroes of the web as well, mm -hmm. because they are not unlike the police force or, you know, the veterans that are doing something really tough and hard to protect the rest of us and allow the rest of us to essentially live in a free society, um, <laughs> but they're the online equivalents of that. And so that's part of the reason uh, we try to have that team part of the rest of Automatic. And 
I do think it is a challenging job. So I have a ton of empathy for it. And that's why I try to do it myself sometimes too. Um, so both keep that industry strong and also see where we can use software to make it more effective. I think that's great. I think more uh, executives at social companies should spend time doing the moderating function. Because ultimately, you know, Tumblr is great and the celebrities are using it and the kids are using it. Ultimately, the, you are in the content moderation business. Mm-hmm. Like That's the heart of the business. If you For Tumblr, for Facebook, for Twitter, whatever, is moderating and ranking content in some way. Or mm-hmm. like... And I, yeah, I, I'm that surprising you're doing it, but I'm glad you're doing it. Y'all do it too. Like your comment section, you have a responsibility to keep that, to moderate that and keep it a, a good place you want to be on the web. Uh, uh, so we do. Uh, do you know, do you know that our coral forks? Like, you know, we have permanent moderators that work with us at The Verge. They're great. Eric, shout out. But we, our company, you know, bought a thing called Coral that is, if you just like look at how the software is expressed, it is a better tool for moderating comments. It has oh, some cool. user features, right? Like it's yeah. it's meant for that, but it the thesis of Coral is that the moderation screen is much easier to use. Ah, I'll have to check that out. I will paint a picture. Imagine if Verge was built on WordPress and oh, Coral was an open source plugin, then everyone in the world could get these cool features, and the whole web would have better conversations. The Coral project guys are. Uh... They're going to be all over me when this gets published. That'll be great. Um, I would love you to try Tumblr again and then send me your feedback. Whatever you want to follow is cool. <laughs> let me know bugs you find. I will put it let on my phone. Know. I will put it back on my phone today. I, uh, Thank you. It's been a few years. Uh, you know, my blog was a Tumblr blog for a long time. It'd be cool to spin that back up. You know, maybe it's a place to aggregate your articles or your podcast or like, just be weird. (laughs) Be weird again on the internet. It's fun. I, hey, that's my, that's my go-to. All right. I'll see if I can open up my old Tumblr log. And if you, if you post some cool stuff there and send it to me, I'll boost it as well. So we'll we'll get (laughs) some cool distribution. That's a quid pro quo now. So I'll see. (laughs) I gotta, I gotta check the ethics lawyers. Uh, No, I'll definitely check it out again. I've heard, right. Like I have Gen Z nieces and nephews. They're all over it. Oh, really? Huh. All their musicians, all their That's friends. cool to hear. Yeah. You know, if we can create a third place on the internet and doesn't have an advertising model, you, you might have seen we just launched a, an ads-free upgrade for Tumblr. Yeah. Twitter and Facebook can never do that because they their business models don't allow them to. But because Tumblr, luckily, is not making very much money right now, we can do <laughs> that and make it the model. And I think that's pretty cool. Uh, we have, I think, a really decent chance to bootstrap a non-surveillance capitalism-based social network, yeah, which I think is impossible for the incumbents right now. They just have the golden handcuffs. We need to take one more break, but I could not let this interview end without asking Matt about Web3. Right now, businesses are facing tough choices. Do you cut costs or drive growth? Solve for today or build for tomorrow? Do you satisfy your shareholders or satisfy your customers? The answer is yes. You don't have to choose. With the intelligent platform for digital business from ServiceNow, you can say yes to unifying your existing systems and yes to accelerating growth. Visit servicenow.com to see how we can help you put yes to work. The world works with ServiceNow. Support for this podcast comes from SmartWater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? 
Smart Water Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smart Water Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. We're back with Matt Malamlik. Uh, we've only got a few minutes left. Uh, I wanted to ask about podcasts, but I'm running out of time. So I want to ask about something else. Um, you, uh, you've been around, you, the, you know, you've, you and the web grown up together. You wrote WordPress. You're in it. We are in the midst of what some people call a shift to web three. Mm-hmm. I feel like you might have many thoughts about the idea that there's another version of the web coming along. Um, mm-hmm. Are you in it? Do you own any blockchain securities? Are you, you got the laser <laughs> eyes? What, what's the situation? Uh, I'm always playing with new technology because that's just okay. what I do for fun. <laughs> <laughs> so I've tried pretty much everything, uh, including like every CMS we've mentioned, every, everything. I think every 10 years or so, people try to brand a new version of the web. It's mostly marketing. It's mostly like fundraising. and, and But there's, there's always some truth to it. Otherwise, it wouldn't wouldn't be something we talk about. Um, it's also just fun to talk about and debate. Like, oh, what is Web3? This isn't Web3. This is Web2. <laughs> I had a thread where I was like, everything you're saying was Web2 actually wasn't Web2. <laughs> it was like what came after Web2. Web2 was actually totally open and you had Technorati and Flickr and, yeah. and Delicious and it was all interoperable and had tagging and like open content. And then like these other things replaced it, like closed social networks and yeah, so Web2 three, was the API era. That's what I meant. You would have a map and you'd get an API from a thing and then you would like mash the two maps together. Yeah. And so what's cool to me is the thing we're calling Web3 is actually exactly what we call Web2. <laughs> <laughs> and But it's using some new technologies. And I think that's cool. And you know what? Blockchain's not right for everything, but it's right for some things. And if well, aren't right name for one thing it's right for. Everything. Other than currency speculation. Um, and immutable. It, well, it solves the... Uh, you call it the something general's problem. <laughs> it's a beautiful, immutable global record that is like might be the first, might be the most secure software that humanity has ever created. Okay. I mean, it, it, this space is rife with scams. So, like, I I buy you in well, theory, but in practice, I, maybe that's not. I'm the case, talking right? about Bitcoin and Ethereum here. Yeah. Like the the like what I think of as like the, the top end blockchains. Like we, we've never created software this secure for this long, (laughs) (laughs) right? Like Microsoft, Apple, billions and billions of dollars put into the operating systems, regularly have zero days and and root exploits. There's a huge bounty if you're able to hack Bitcoin and yet it's it's still trucking along. I'm kind of astounded at that. That's incredible. Bitcoin is also open source. <laughs> so another thing, everything I've been saying about open source, so is Ethereum. These are open source projects. So it's it's an example of open source being applied to a new era, era, which is like finance essentially, and completely transforming it in a way that one is doing something humanity's never been able to do before, and two is um, yeah, changing the course of things. It's influencing not just itself, but everything else in the market, which I think is pretty cool. Now, am I? Uh, you know, do I have laser eyes? No. <laughs> There's so much to fix with this technology. But but I do believe that, you know, the problems that people bring up, like resource utilization or whatever it is, yes, those are problems, but we're going to fix them. And when I say we, I mean, like, broadly, technologists, engineers working 
you know, tirelessly to release new versions of this, these things every day, every week, every month, every year. Do you own any Bitcoin? Do you own any NFTs? Um, I, I have a little bit of everything. Okay. <laughs> um, actually, WordPress.com was the first major internet service to accept Bitcoin. In 2012, we were on the cover of Bitcoin Magazine, and the Amazing. article was written by Vitalik, who at the time was the editor <laughs> and a writer of Bitcoin wow. Magazine. Vitalik is a, so, the inventor of Ethereum, so in case people don't know. That's crazy. <laughs> so we've been following this forever. And, um, you know, technologies go through adoption cycles. They go through peaks and trials. They go through winters, where everyone thinks it's the dumbest thing in the world. And that's actually where a lot of the innovation comes from. I think they go through hype periods and definitely a lot of what's going on, particularly with NFTs to me right now, feels a little bit like ICOs in 2017 or something like that. Like there's, you said it, there are a lot of people who who are in it for the wrong reasons, who are scamming folks. There's, there's a lot of issues to work out. But fundamentally, things that give people more freedom, more control and enable new, <laughs> new features for humanity, I, I would bet on in the long term. Yeah. Uh, but I would just make this split, and, uh, and I'll uh, ask it one more time, but maybe with mm-hmm. this proviso. I'm asking about Web3, not Bitcoin, not mm-hmm. Ethereum, the currency, but Web3, which is, uh, I would hazily define it, and I'm sure I'm going to get this <laughs> wrong because it's, it's, it's up for grabs, right? But I'd hazily define it as the version of the web where everything you do is a tradable commodity and people are getting paid for all kinds of things vastly more often than now right like that's kind of what you're what everyone's getting at is you're a musician you release a song it's an nft people can sell it when they sell it again you get a cut and like uh, we show up on my website and i don't know my website has a token and you buy the token like that piece of it where you directly connect the technology to the cultural aspect of the web is what i would call web3 if, if okay. such a definition is even possible to exist. So w- let's just take that definition to true and I'll respond to that definition. Okay. So but I, gonna... I just to, to the listeners who are freaking out in their cars, like, yeah, I just made that one up, but it's, it's what yeah, I got, and, right? Well, that's part of what makes these things difficult to discuss is people will argue about the definition for hours and hours. Yeah. But let's just take the two things you said. What was the first part? So everything is a tradable commodity? Yeah, everything asset. becomes uh, for sale. Um, that's obviously not going to happen. One, I don't think we would want that. <laughs> but two, like, you know, there's, there's lots of reasons for things not to be tradable commodities. So I would say that maybe we'll have, like, NFTs will exist, of course, but, like, will everything go that way? Of course not. Two, creators getting paid, I don't think is dependent on blockchain technology. That's yeah. a separate trend that's happening that I think is just part of um, the disintermediation of uh, distributors, you know? Essentially, what the social networks did was they allowed people to go more direct than before. And that's also what the open web's been doing for 20, 30 years now. And so, yeah, the power is in the hand of creators. I, I love that, you know, salaries are going up for writers and editors and all these sorts of things. Like, this is value going to where I think was being created. But, you know, what that's happening on, you know, WooCommerce and Substack and other things just as much as it's happening on any of these uh quote unquote web three platforms. So I think you have to really break out these trends, decide what's orthogonal and what's absolutely going to happen, which I think creators capturing more of the value that they create is hundred percent going to happen. And what's absolutely not going to happen. Like everything becoming a tradable commodity. <laughs> uh, 
the financialization of the web is like underway, I would say. And maybe it will stop and maybe it will reverse. But right now, right, all the energy is to financialize a bunch of things. Just as a, as a counter to that, I will add that one of the most amazing things about the technological revolution was allowing for economics of abundance, not scarcity. Yeah. Things get more valuable the more copies there are. That's where we were talking about the positive flywheel of open mm-hmm. source earlier. It's, WordPress gets more valuable the more free copies there are. So um, now we're getting more things to introduce scarcity and the value of scarcity into the web, perhaps even programmatically with stuff like NFTs. But that doesn't mean that I think the fundamental difference from what's come from tens of thousands of humanity and civilizational advance before is this idea that in the world of bits instead of atoms, uh, you and I don't have a zero-sum way of prospering, and we can both benefit from the same thing. We can perfectly copy that, uh, that software, and that actually enables entirely new business models that are pretty exciting. Or maybe that it's not a business at all, which is okay. Everything doesn't have to be for profit. I mean, if I if we have one message to send, I think that that's the one we should end with. Uh, <laughs> you've given me uh, some extra time here. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on Decoder. Appreciate it. See you again in a few years. And hopefully we can grab a drink before then. Please, I'm dying to. Thanks again to Matt Mullenweg for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like it, hit us with that five-star review. Here's a secret. If you tweet the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. Research was done by Liz Leon. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. Support for Decoder comes from SAP Business AI. Imagine the most tedious tasks you have at work. Is it making all those manual adjustments to your weekly spending reports? Or sending essentially the same emails over and over again? If you're looking for ways to innovate your business, it might be time to consider SAP Business AI. With dozens of potential integrations to optimize sales, procurement, finance, human resources, and more, SAP Business AI may be able to improve your business operations inside and out. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Learn more at sap.com slash AI.